Good morning, everyone. Let me start, as we always do, and as you've heard this morning, with our traditional acknowledgement of country. And can I welcome friends of the university, alumni, guests, and I can see lots of students here, so welcome one and all to our wonderful campus. Um, let me just say a few words in order to get us started this morning, and you'll note the title of the presentation that the panel is working to this morning, Gender Equity in Your Lifetime. Well, I had hoped that that would be in my mum's lifetime. Now I'm hoping that will be in my daughter's lifetime. Something to think about for us all. Women have been told for a long time to be patient. It won't happen overnight. And of course it hasn't happened overnight, but there are many things, as Frida talked about this morning, that we can be really proud of in terms of what is happening, not just here in the state, but globally. So think about the Sustainable Development Goals and the focus on lifting women out of poverty and improving education across all, but particularly across women and young women in particular. And universities have a significant role to play in particular in education, not just in terms of providing education, but of course education that is much more around a rounded, holistic education, supporting equity for all. Now we've heard a couple of shares this morning. Thank you, Frieda, and I thought I might also start with an equity share. This is one of the things that's important to do at our committees when we start with our um, opening presentations of the committees that we hold in the University and Equity Share. So um, I would like to share one for me, which is that if you added up all of the years that the group of eight universities have been established, and for, for those of you that are, are not familiar, you know, eight universities research intensive in this nation, if you added up all the years they've been established, it adds up to nearly a thousand. In a thousand years, <laughs> I am the fourth female Vice-Chancellor, and this is the first year in all of that time that there's been a female chair of the Group of Eight. Now I say that not in any way to put the, sh the spotlight on myself, the spotlight's going to be on this panel this morning and all of you, but it is a significant and important statement to make around not only our sector, but also that statement that's made in the preliminaries for today, which is about the length of time it's taking for us to make and effect those changes. So we're going to have a discussion around this this morning, but I'd like to say two other things. I'd like to first of all acknowledge the students in the room, and particularly members of the Guild Council, and you're going to hear closing statements today from our women's officer. And this is a particularly proud moment for me. I'm very proud to be the Vice-Chancellor of this university. But today I feel exceptionally proud because the way in which our Student Guild and our Women's Officer handled what has, has been quite a difficult and tricky week for this university, directly relevant to this morning session, International Women's Day, in relation to a speaker that we had on campus last evening, has been out an outstanding show of leadership. Congratulations. Thank you. 
And I'll conclude that by saying, this morning I remind you of the statement by William James. My experience is what I pay attention to. I encourage you to note where your attention is at the moment and to think about where your intention will be as you leave this morning's session. Because it's not just about having breakfast, is it? <laughs> there is a call to action here. Listen out for it carefully, for it may not be so obvious to you, but as you go through your day, it will become apparent what it is that you have to do today on International Women's Day as a result of sharing this wonderful breakfast with this group of people this morning. So we've got this amazing panel here, um, as you've already heard, um, in and of their own right, experts in their field. But today we're really going to ask them to focus on the issues around gender equity, but particularly uh, the statement that I've mentioned earlier today. And I'm going to start, Alison, with you, if I may, um, and come directly to you and get on with the questioning around the fundamentals and the lack of economic parity. And particularly, uh, I think, when we heard, as Frida told us this morning, around the World Economic Forum, and we've all been exposed to those stats around economic parity taking two more centuries to achieve. Would you like to share your thoughts on that? And in particular, what do you think are the issues at play? <coughs> Thanks, Vice-Chancellor. Um, I, I thought it would be useful to frame this as an international discussion and then focus on a couple of things that are a call to action for Australia. So if you read um, some of the OEC um, reports, OECD reports lately, you'll see that there is a long shopping list of things that are structural issues for women worldwide. <laughs> I'm not going to enter into the world of statistics. Um, it was covered beautifully already and, uh, and um, there's quite a few um, in, in the domain this week. But the things that are still holding women back internationally are their great propensity to fall into poverty, um, the historical lack of action on giving women, uh, girls, education priority, which is changing. Um, internationally, there's still um, a problem with the segmentation of labour, so women tend to do what's known as women's work, which tends to have lower pay. There's also the lack of um, capital for women's entrepreneurship. And there is also a whole bunch of things that are created around femininity, and that is to do with rates of sexual harassment, both in the workplace and more generally, other types of harassment and domestic violence, which are seen by the OECD as structural issues that get in the way of women's participation. Those are things, uh, some of those things um, will have um, um, resonance in Australia. So the OECD says that in Australia our structural problems are these. We have a very segregated workforce where we tend to have women's work and men's work compared to many other advanced economies. Women work more part-time in Australia than in, any, in many other economies. Uh, women's pay is lower, so the average women's full-time pay is lower than average men's full-time pay. 
childcare is expensive and we still have to deal with those issues around domestic violence and sexual harassment like many other economies do too. So that paints the picture of the sort of structural call to action, I think. I'm hoping that helps, helps you answer that question. Thank you. Did anybody from the panel want to add to that? I'm happy, um, as a, a surgeon, um, to speak. We've got, um, I never really thought that there would be an economic disparity in, uh, in what a surgeon could earn, um, but there's recent data out from the College of Surgeons that pointed out that um, once you had taken all the confounding factors out in terms of um, uh, taking time out to have children, um, what your practice focused on, um, whether it was bariatric surgery or anything else, there was still a gender gap of up to 18% um, disparity in what people would earn. And, um, and the thought was that uh, the men are prepared to charge a larger gap in private than the females. The females didn't feel empowered to do that. They thought they would lose their, um, their referral base uh, if they did that. And then a really interesting um, piece of um, information came out recently um, that if, as a surgeon, one of your patients died, um, your referral base would drop for both men and women, but it dropped by more than 50% for the female surgeons as opposed to the male surgeons, and that continued for a further 18 months after um, the death of your patient. And I thought that was really interesting um, and reflective of, of a silly difference, you know, um, in, in our workplace. I might pick up on that because I think that, that that's a really interesting point. It speaks, I think, about trust and confidence. Mm. Um, Helen, is there anything that you could talk about in terms of that trust and confidence, not just in terms of women's work, but about the, the role-specific issues in, in general? Well, I, I think if we're going to have a talk about sort of equality, then we also then have to have the discussion about bias and prejudice, discrimination, racism, stereotyping, attitude. And that all starts very young. I don't think people are born racist. I don't think that they're sort of born with innate prejudices. Maybe they have some propensity towards those things. But if we don't tackle that early, it just becomes worse over time. And of course, one of the hardest things in, in any sort of change is shifting attitudes. Um, we, we can mandate some things, but how do you mandate fairness? And this has always been one of the problems, I think, that we face, and in particular in, in this sort of issue where we're looking at the roles of women and perhaps masculine stereotypes um, and all of that sort of thing. It, it's very hard to get that sort of, I suppose, cultural and societal change around roles and responsibilities and attitudes towards men, women and, and non-binary uh, gender as well. And, and I think it's interesting that um, as, as we sort of move forward and people feel more able to speak up, uh, these issues become even, even sort of stronger, I think, in terms of how do we actually get that real change. So we can have some structural changes. Um, most, most of my colleagues, for example, unlike the surgeons perhaps, probably earn the same salaries, although I agree with you in private, possibly people don't charge as much. So we have achieved some parity in some places, but, but not overall. And I think it does come back to a fundamental attitude. In fact, one of the questions I wrote down was, what are men afraid of? What are men afraid of if women step up and have positions of power and control? Are they afraid we'll have a better world? <laughs> <coughs> Just leave you with that thought. Mm -hmm. So there's a question that's been thrown out from Helen. So start to think and conceptualise your questions because we are going to be coming to you. Naveen, what are men afraid of? 
Lucky you! That's not scripted, by the way. I'm going to answer the easy questions. That's fine. I'm answer the easy questions. So, what are men afraid of? You can answer uh, another question. You don't have to answer. No, no, I'm not. afraid of that question. That really gave me, that really gave me pause. Um, and I was exploring, and, and a couple of things came up immediately for me. And in, in, in the spirit of, of, of sharing that with you, the, the first was there was an instinctive defensive response. Okay, so you ask me that, I'm going, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? Right? I'm, I'm not afraid of um, that at all. But I was, I was examining my, my defensive response, to be honest. And that, that, so it, it did put me in a place where I was ex, ex, exploring what was going on for me when you asked me that question. So I don't have the answer, but maybe by the end of, the, end of this panel discussion, I might have the answer to that question. But I did want to say two things on, on, on the original question on structural issues. I, I think there's, for, for me, two reflections to add. I think the first is the notion of, of um, unpaid work and work at home, and what do we really think of? I mean, when we describe a housewife or a homemaker, um, what are we really thinking? What, what, what's the value of the work that person does? Because I, I, I generally think that is the most important work in the world. Nothing else happens without that happening, without um, kids being raised and families being taken care of, but we don't value that. And so that's, a, for me, a social construct, and it's, it's very deep. It's a very deep social construct, and how do we change that is, is, a, is a fundamental issue around structural um, and the structure of society. I think that's an important thing, and I'm hoping we can explore that, especially as we think about the theme for this IWD is balance, balance for better. I think we should think a little bit about that. And the second one is this notion of um, stock versus flow. Um, so when you have income disparity built over years, I think it, it, is, a, it is a really serious issue. It's one thing to achieve income equality at a, a certain point, but what happens to the 20 or 30 years that have happened before? And, I, and, and one of the questions I have for us is, how long before true equality? So even if we achieve income equality, it would still take another 20 to 30 years for, for wealth equality. And I think we should think as much about wealth and how do we make sure that there's wealth equality as we think about income equality, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And that includes access to good financial advice and things like that as well, not just the income. So income is an important one, but I, I do think about wealth. And I find there's an even bigger gap there than just an income. Mm -hmm. That's a structural issue. I think these are important issues. I, I am listening to Naveen around, talking around unpaid work. One of the things that strikes me is, and I have a partner who doesn't work, and one of the questions he's constantly asked when we're at events or out is, what do you do? And he finds it acutely embarrassing to respond, well, you know, I'm the person who keeps everything going at home, without which I wouldn't be able to function. And so I think this whole notion of unpaid work has, it's very complex and it's becoming more and more complex. And I'm not sure we're really talking about that in any great depth. So it is a particular issue in terms of um, you know, women's unpaid work, which is, I think has a different nature and a different quality in ways that um, perhaps it, it isn't the same for men. But we do have to, I think, start to surface some of those structural issues because they're not just in the workplace. They're across the whole of society. So again, start thinking about what you want to say in this regard. Can I come back to Helen? Helen, you started to talk about definitions and concepts. Is there a difference between equity and equality? 
It's, um, I mean, I think they're, they're quite strongly related, but, but equity is about fairness. So it's about giving people what they need in order to achieve at, to the same level as everyone else. Whereas equality is kind of treating everyone the same and everyone having the same rights and responsibilities, perhaps, you know, in terms of human rights or other sorts of things. So, so they're not exactly the same thing. Well, I don't know whether anyone, has anyone ever read the WA Substantive Equality Policy? Tell me, anyone in the room, put their hand up if you've read the WA Substantive Equality Policy. Or, or wrote it. Or wrote it. <laughs> Actually, don't, don't put your hand up if you wrote it. Um, so there, there you go. I mean, so we have these things and we have these words. And in fact, we, we were having a conversation earlier about we have lots of things in sort of policy and that we're supposed to do, but we don't do them, we don't evaluate them, no one knows about them. I mean, the fact that you're a highly educated audience sitting here and you don't even know about it. I knew about this policy many years ago when I used to lecture around equality and equity in regard to Indigenous health. Um, and no one knew about it then. And it's been revised several times and still nobody knows about it. So, you know, you just have to wonder why. Why, why is that? Why do we bother writing all of this stuff and having some sort of launch of it and then not doing anything about it? It seems like an awful waste of time. But I think the, the issue about equity and equality is that we need both. So we need a platform from which we can say these rights are assured and then we need to say, well, what's the differences that we need to be aware of so that we actually can allow people to come up? I think education is a good one. Education is one of the levelers in society. You can come from a disadvantaged background, but if you're able to achieve an education, you can make a life yourself. But unless education is made possible, you're still then dealing with an inequality or an inequity. In regard to Indigenous health, we, um, there, was this, there was some evidence to say that if you had Aboriginal health workers employed in a hospital who worked on the wards with Aboriginal patients, you improve their health outcomes significantly. There was only one hospital in Perth who employed Aboriginal health workers. The others had maybe some liaison or bits and pieces or one person that was 0.2. Um, and when they didn't turn up for work because they were overloaded, they got blamed. So we, we almost build in inequity in some of the structural ways we do things, but we also ignore evidence about what works. So I think we kind of have a long way to go with this area, but they are very simple concepts. And in some respects, it's sort of a no-brainer. Why wouldn't we want to be fair? Why wouldn't we ha want to have service systems that I'm in health and mental health? Why wouldn't we want to have a service system where everyone got the best possible care and outcome? Why wouldn't we want that? Instead, we, we have these systems that actually push people out or create adverse situations or create poor outcomes. And we just pander to those who fit the mould. I'll just give you one example, because um, I've trained a lot of medical and dental and podiatry students over the years here at UWA. And I said to uh, this group of dental students one day, what if you were really seriously ill and you were in central Australia and the only service available was an Aboriginal-owned a hospital with all Aboriginal staff and they spoke traditional language and the nurses and the doctors and the surgeons were all Aboriginal and you were seriously ill and you had to go there, how, how would you feel about going into that system? And they all looked at me and then this one dental student who just couldn't help himself said, I wouldn't bloody go there. <laughs> I said, but do you expect you know, people from remote communities with different languages, different cultural understandings, different behaviours to come into our places of care and you think it's going to be okay because you're a nice person and you're going to be nice to everyone? 
it just is no longer acceptable. I'm going to throw to the floor before I go to the next question. Is there anybody who wants to ask a question in response to anything you've heard so far? Somebody's going to be brave. <laughs> I'm very good at waiting. <laughs> and Naveen's still thinking. Romola, off you go. Oh, wasn't expecting. <laughs> 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 Microphone's not working. <laughs> He does yeah, work. He does work. <laughs> yes. You said afterwards yes. he doesn't work, and then yeah. you said he does, does work, work, and yeah. he does really important work. That's right. And I think this isn't, this isn't yeah. directed at you. It's really an observation about how we use language, and how that language reveals our own unconscious bias. Absolutely. Um, and and um, he does work. He does work. He does. And he says he doesn't. So when people ask him, he says he doesn't. And it's a, it, this is so. The, the point is about how we educate. Not, it's, this is not just about what we do in education internally in the university or across schools. It's also about how we manage our interactions in society. So if I was to take your point, Romola, and it's really important that we're, this is always reflected back at us, because actually my comment was, without him doing what he does, I can't work. We both work. But, the, but every... So my reflection on that is that every interaction, this is a call to action, folks, including one for me, every interaction is a possible intervention. And that, you know, if we can think about it in that way, that these are very simple interventions that we can make in every situation we're in. And there's an opportunity every moment of every day, and they pass us by, and they pass me by, they pass us by. So thank you, from Romola, for bringing that to the top of the agenda. Thank you. Anything else before we go back to the panel questions? Sarah. Thank you for all your tremendous insights. There's one word that was used a couple of times, and that's the word control. And I have never understood in my life and experience why some people feel a need to control others. And I think if we can look at that issue from all the different aspects, it, it might set in train a way of thinking and behavior that would actually break down barriers. And I just wondered um, what your thought, I mean, some of that control comes from tradition and history, eons of history about controlling women in all sorts of different cultures. I just wondered what your thoughts are on that, perhaps, as being one of the cardinal features of this issue around equity and equality. Well, maybe it's... It, it, so control, obviously, is a, is a big issue, but it's perhaps also power, which is maybe related, but it's not similar. quite the same. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's one of the issues, isn't it, is, is how much power and control does one person need? And uh, we also know that um, ultimately when people have too much power, then you know, there's all those other sorts of issues that come along with it, like corruption and, and whatever. So, so how do we sort of get that balance right? Um, I think that when people you know, are, are fear losing control, then, they, they, then they, they, they become even more defensive. Perhaps that's why you felt so defensive when I asked that question, what am I afraid of? And we, we've talked a lot about, particularly say in, in mental health, power sharing or having a shared narrative with the people that you serve. 
And so doctors having to give up a little bit of their power and have a partnership with the people that, they, they, that are coming to them. And, and, and it shifts the power dynamic that you see it as a partnership as opposed to, well, I'm in control, I have all the expertise, I will tell you what to do. Um, to more of a partnership about, well, you know, let's work this out together. I bring a certain level of expertise. You bring your expertise as a person coming to me. Let's work this out together. We haven't achieved that. We, we really haven't, but hopefully that's what we're moving to. And that's the same example everywhere. How do we get that equity and equality in society where we can actually work together? At the end of the day, we're, we're all people. We all have our own set of skills and values and things that we can contribute to make the place better or to make life better or to make the future better. But, but how do we get seen as people as opposed to gender? I think that's where we have to move from. And I think this was a, com a comment that Kate and I were focused a little bit on at breakfast this morning when we were talking about achievements are not, not driven by gender. You know, your achievements are achievements in your own right. And that's another thing that, you know, just going back to Romana's point, it's very easy for us to get hooked up on seeing achievements as being gender specific when, in, in, of course, you know, there, there, are, there are many ways to think about the successes, and I'll come back to you on that in a moment, Kate. But Alice, isn't this just about agency in general? Isn't that what Sarah was talking about? Isn't this just about agency for all? Uh, you'd like to think so. I, I, I still think, though, that there are um, unconscious biases and dynamics in workplaces. I, I'm a headhunter, and I do HR consulting and board consulting, so that's where I spend most of my time. Um, I do think that while ideally you'd think everyone brings agency and some personal control into even boardrooms, there is still cultures that exist when groups of people work together. And I was doing a piece of work recently where a board has done a lot of transformation, but there are still few women directors on that board and it is still described as a blokes club and that women get sidelined. Um, and that isn't an unusual environment, either, say, in corporate executives or management teams or boards. So the sense that we can all bring agency and control, control those cultures individually through our personality, I think, is asking too much. I think there's still work to be done on reflecting as groups of people. So CEOs, chairs, boards, executives, heads of faculty, you know, there are lots of people with power and control in, in organisations who should reflect on whether the culture actually gives people agency and particularly whether the culture actually diminishes the status of women in those organisations or groups. There's still work to be done, I think. Mm -hmm. Naveen, do you have a thought around that? So, um the, the thing that was going on in my mind as I was hearing Alison and, and, and Helen is I do a lot of work with organizations in a, in a similar capacity as uh, Alison, but I think a lot about uh, power structures and systems. Um, and, and you think about power structures and systems, then often there's things that are holding them in place, right? Um, so forget the gender equity issue for a second. Let's talk about something else and let's see how change happens in a system. So a, a classic um, change problem is we are um, embedded in the old way of doing things. Now the world is far more digital. There's a lot more data. We've got to get more analytics savvy. No, nobody can kind of disagree with that. There isn't a lot of emotion embedded in there. 
when you go and tell an organization or an organization comes to the realization we should do it, they all say, yeah, it's great, let's do it. But nothing changes. Nothing changes for six months, 12 months, two years, five years. And that's true for most organizations we're a part of. That would probably be true for this university as well. It's just hard to make change happen, <laughs> right? I suddenly become defensive. <laughs> it happens. Because that's exactly the point. Yeah. Because defensiveness happens when people feel attacked. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the challenges that we, I often have in these organizations that, and organizations have is if you're going to tell people, you've got to change, you are wrong, it, it doesn't matter what I say anymore. It's gone. So part of this is in how do we make this okay for everyone to be a part of the conversation? And, um, and, and that is a, a big part of how we think about system change or power structure change, right? So, a large part of this, and, and we can talk more about organizations and corporates, and I work with a lot of middle managers, um, female middle managers, one-on-one, -on -one, because it's a, it's a lonely place and it's hard. But then going in and saying, things have to change and we have to, it, it almost kind of, there's an antibody, there's a set of antibodies that come back from the structure. So how do you subtly change that structure from within is a big part of the work that has to happen. Um, and I think some of that is the kind of the, what, the vision for change, but at a very tactical level, what needs to happen on, on a day-to-day -day basis, the behaviors, every interaction yes. intervention, that I think is, the, is, is where we need to be working to actually affect change. Um, and, and that was going on in my mind, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like in practice, but how do we make the day-to-day -day change um, in a way that everyone can be part of the change, so it's not us versus them. I think it's an important part of how we have to do this. Speaking of that, I'm going to come back to, to Kate on the discussion we were having earlier. And so it relates to this, how, how do society, culture, the ways in which we perpetuate through our everyday interactions, the ongoing stories, the ongoing narratives. And the example might be, and Kate's got her own examples, but, but um, uh, Pam Mulroy, the astronaut who was the commander who took up the ship to the International Space Station was in Canberra last week and actually here also last week doing fantastic presentations, really inspiring young women and young girls. Um, and, and I was, it was the first time I'd met a real life astronaut, so I was <laughs> awestruck. But, but you know, um, we had a conversation afterwards and she was saying she, she's very happy to do all of that, but she, she, it's, she's an astronaut. And it was she's not. Uh, it, it wasn't because she's a woman yeah. that she's an astronaut. And I wonder, Kate, to what extent you feel that you know you you were talking about your profession earlier today. To what extent you feel there are societal and cultural ways in which we story these achievements and these successes that actually perpetuate the ongoing problems. Yeah, so I might just give some stats to people to start actually about my profession so you know where I'm coming from. Um, so I think I work in one of the biggest boys clubs uh, in the world <laughs> as a female orthopaedic surgeon. We make up, um, we've actually jumped a little, uh, we now make up 4% of the orthopaedic workforce as females. It was 2.5% for many years. Um, in Western Australia, there are only three of us, and one's just retired, so there's now two. Um, and no one has graduated in orthopaedic surgery since I did as a female in 2007. So um, that's sort of the background to, to where I sit um, in this. Um, 
And in terms of, you know, did I get here as a female and things like that, I was saying to Don earlier that when I actually operate, I, I always call that my happy place, you know, when I'm actually in the surgery, that's my happy place. I'm there just because I'm a surgeon, not because I'm a woman in surgery, not because I've done these things. I'm just a surgeon and it's great. Um, I love doing women's surgery talks. I do heaps of them. I try to inspire lots of young people. We had um, an event on Wednesday night with uh, med um, medical students from UWA there uh, and things. Um, but it can be a bit tiring to be trying to be that person and perpetuate change all the time as well. So I think my message to other people in the room too is also, um, you know, join us. Don't make some of us be the sole voice for change um, at whatever level uh, you're doing. Mm -hmm. Helen, anything to say in response to that? Um, look, I, 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 I agree with you and I feel really sorry for you being an orthopedic surgeon, <laughs> quite honestly. <laughs> it's a great career. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, th I think that we have to be really careful when we, we start doing these things that we're true to ourselves. And, um, you know, I can, re I can remember comments, and this is no offence to you at all, um, Kate, but comments about, oh, well, you know, you have to be a sort of a, a bloke as a woman to make it in surgery. You know, you have to be like a man to make it in surgery because it's a boys' club. And, and I, I think you just, you've just blasted that myth, that, you know, you just did it anyway because you wanted it and you loved it. Yeah. I wrote a letter in um, Year 8 to my high school principal, we had to write letters saying, you know, hello, who we are and what we want to be when we grow up. And I wrote that I wanted to be a doctor, not just any doctor, but an orthopaedic surgeon. I didn't know any different at that stage. I didn't realise that there was this whole gender disparity. Yeah. And so, you know, we just did it. So, so I think that when, when we start, you know, looking at the, 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 the people who have gone before us and, and created these pathways perhaps for other women, you know, which were into professions that were largely male-dominated, we have to make sure that we, we, are, we do stay true to ourselves and we don't play the gender politics and the gender games that do go on in, in systems. Um, but that we, we remain that, have, retain that sense of personal integrity so that we can feel good about who we are and maintain our sense of identity in whatever profession or whatever area that we go into. And I think, I think that's probably the most critical thing, that we don't get swept up in all of these gender politics, that we actually just forge our own path and stay true to ourselves and gather our allies along the way and keep going. Because at the end of the day, you, know, you, you will have your happy place and you will be able to do what you want to do. Um, otherwise, you, you'll end up not knowing who you are and you'll fall, you'll fall by the wayside. Um, so I think that with, with, with women, when they first sort of enter into these other sorts of professions, um, you know, we just, we, we've really got to be supportive because it is a hard road sometimes and you get all sorts of criticisms and all sorts of stupid things that people say to you just because you're female. I was telling a story earlier. I was on the Royal Commission for Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse for five years. And um, I was leaving the hotel one day and um, I said to the concierge, oh, I'm waiting, waiting for a car uh, you know, to pick me up. It's a com car, but maybe that one over there might be mine. And he looked at me and he goes, that wouldn't be for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, go and ask. <laughs> so he goes over to the com car and uh, you know, they said, yes, they're waiting for Commissioner Milroy. And then he comes back and he says, not for you. It's for a commissioner, Milroy. <laughs> and I said, that's me. <laughs> so 
so, you know, I, I think that we just have this extra shit put on us as women <laughs> because we don't look like men when we're an orthopaedic surgeon. Somehow I didn't look like a grey-haired old, old man <laughs> to be a Royal Commissioner. Um, and I'll just tell you another story as well while we're on anecdotes. Um, I was sitting in the plane in Qantas, and I'll have to speak to Richard Goiter about this, in Qantas, in business class, and the old grey-haired bloke next to me was asleep. And the hostess said to me, do you think we should wake him up for his dinner? I said, I don't know who the hell he is. Well, you think I'm his handbag or something? So, you know, what, what is it? Apparently, I don't look like anything. I don't look like a doctor. I don't look like a professor. I don't look like a commissioner. I bet you don't look like an orthopaedic surgeon. No, there was a movement, though. Um, last year, there was, you know, hashtag... I look like a surgeon, and uh, it went viral across the, uh, the world with all the females. It actually ended up being a bit of a glam fest in the end, so which surgeon could look the most glamorous? <laughs> 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 it was very impressive. <laughs> we have to get away from that. We have to get away from all of that stuff and, and understand that women can achieve just as well as anybody else. But I think underneath what you're saying as well, Helen, is a really important message about values. And, um, and we've been talking a lot today about you know, many things on the surface, but underneath we've also, I think, really touched on trust, confidence, values, and a number of really important aspects of, of how we have to grapple in society and with societal transformation to really ensure that they flow through underneath so that every individual has the opportunity to shine through, through their values and with the trust and confidence to be who they are with agency. And I think these are really important messages, fundamentally um, important messages for all of us today. I'm going to do something that's also not scripted. So I'm going, Chris, Chris, you, yes. Chris, what are you thinking? Chris Sutherland. Yeah, no, um, thanks. I tell you what I'm thinking is that, um, Unless you skip balance in the education system, you're never going to you're never going to get into the workplace. And later, I know we still have to solve the leaky pipeline and all the other things, childcare and so on. But at the moment, right, the imbalance that exists in education today is the same as it was 25 years ago. So therefore, in 30 years' time, you're still going to be talking about the same problems about about a pay gap, about the number of men versus women that are in operational and management roles. Etc. Etc. So, I really do think that uh, there needs to be a, a, a stronger um, a piece of work and uh, some maybe some more intervention in education, such that in every subject, you know, from year eight to year twelve or year seven to year twelve, and in every course at university, why isn't there about 50% men and 50% women? Right? You know, and today, if you read the Australian, there's an article again today that that showed how in year 12 across the country last year, there was more than 50% of boys uh, versus girls, 50% um, more boys than girls did the highest level maths. Um, it's a bit of a pet hobby horse of mine, I know, but again, I see it as a, as, a, as a key driver and, you know, so maybe, you know, as a university sector, maybe some more thought about what are the, what are the ways you can change that, you know, should, should doing occupational therapy for men be cheaper <laughs> and doing engineering for girls be cheaper just to put out and make a, a bit of a market 
way around that. Um, maybe there should be a certain amount of quotas around courses to get more gender balance. And I'm saying both ways, because I think, you know, as a society, we are going to be better if we've got more male teachers, more male nurses, more female electricians, and more female engineers. And, uh, but we have to get that right. Otherwise, you, you, you were never going to solve the problem later. Um, you know, why aren't girls choosing to become orthopaedic surgeons? Well, there's not enough girls even choosing to do maths. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 57% of them are choosing to do medicine, though. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. <laughs> but 57% uh, of girls or students? I think the gender balance at yeah. UWA is 57% yeah. of uh, medical students are female. Yeah. So, certainly the OECD says that one of the, the wicked problems for Australia is girls' participation in STEM subjects. Mm. And then when you add to that the problem with our segregated workforce where there's women's work and men's work. Um, basically, men do industrial work and women do services work. Good, yeah. That really makes the problem more overt. And then, of course, pay in those sectors is disparate as well. So that reinforces the gender pay gap. But the point I'd make is that it's not about a STEM career, right? Um, you know, when we hire a, uh, you know, an apprentice painter, right, the kid that actually is a bit better at maths ends up getting involved in estimating sales, running projects, all jobs that are higher income than just being the painter, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you look at a pay gap, right, uh, it's, you know, if, there has to be some balance in the education skill set of males and females when they leave school to get balance in the workforce. Otherwise, we will never catch up. That, just my opinion. Thanks, Chris. I think, I mean, this is a really important... one comment about yeah. that? Just, just on that point, I, I completely agree with you about education, but perhaps it starts earlier than that. Perhaps we need, really need to focus on how kids are being brought up and what the attitudes are there. Right from early childhood, you know, from, from the moment they're born right through to the time they get into school, you've already got the biases creeping in. And then the school is trying to go against the biases. But we really need to devote a lot more time and effort into getting those messages out into early childhood and into families and getting the cultural shift there so that kids grow up knowing that anyone can achieve anything they want, male, female, whatever, it doesn't matter, that you can achieve to your best potential and you'll be supported to do that before they get to school. No, I agree, it's, it's yeah. the parents. I think the, there was a the study parents. that came out of the University of Melbourne and there have been several others that have been done around the world looking at um, pocket money. Um, and the disparity in pocket money, so um, also. And males um, got on average, I think it was 18% more. And as you got into the 11 to 16 year old age bracket, that crept up to 30% more than women. And then it also looked at the chores that those children had to do to achieve that pocket money. And um, again, they were very gender specific, you know, with the lawn mowing and the putting out the rubbish being the bloke's job and the ironing being the, the female job. It's a fantastic study. So that's, a, yeah. we need to start in early childhood. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. You've, you've raised a couple of issues and I'm gonna to come to Smina, who's got a hand up for a question. But can I, while, you, while we're doing that, um, Naveen, can you be thinking about the future of work? Yeah. Because I think there's a couple of things in what Chris said that we should attend to. One was the future of work, and the other was the thorny issue of quotas. So can I ask the panel to give some thought to that while we answer Samina's question? Thank you. It was just a comment. I think most of the discussion has been across gender barrier and, you know, how men look at women and whether they're afraid or not. But I'm thinking on International Women's Day, which is really about international women. We also need to think about biases 
among women as well towards others. Mm -hmm. Because we cannot create a really just, equitable society where a certain category of women get more advantage vis-a-vis -vis other women. And those who are in a position of advantage, irrespective of their ethnic background, then do tend to not always promote other women, but actually stop other women from coming forward. So I think that's another bias that we need to address. And without doing that, we're putting women away. Thank you, Serena. I mean, what, I think this is an important comment that we ought to spend some time on as well. We're going to move around a bit at the moment and get a few things going. But, but you know, really, the purpose of this morning is to have an honest conversation. And if we're not having an honest conversation, if we can't speak up in a way that really surfaces these issues, we all have our unconscious bias, every single one of us. And we all need to work to be less defensive more open around that, included myself in that. There are, as I was looking around the room, we have an amazingly diverse group of individuals in this room. And as soon as we get into a particular track, it's very easy to forget what's in the peripheral vision. And then we start to think about peripheral vision, we already are thinking around marginalization. So we've got some important things, I think, that you're surfacing here. Serena, so um, anything in response to that, but also in response to the thorny issues of quotas, which was one point that was made, and the future of work. Naveen, I'm going to come to you first. Yeah, so uh, the, the one thing I would say in response to that is, when I moved here, so I'm not a graduate here, I, I didn't even grow up here, right? I moved here, what, seven years ago? It was quite interesting, because I'd walk into most rooms, and I didn't realize this, because I worked in India for, for a fair few years, I was a partner there, I didn't realize um, what the color of my skin meant, walking into rooms here, um, and walking into all kinds of rooms, right? So it, it's a different kind of, um, it, it, is a, it, it does feel quite different. And the, the best way to describe this is when I go to restaurants to pick up, there's a one in two chance. They think I'm an Uber Eats. <laughs> right? it's, it's true. It's true. It's, it's, it's funny. And it's true. Um, so, so this question of diversity is an interesting one. And it's, it's really an interesting one in Perth, Western Australia, yeah. um, more than many places. And it's all kinds of, of, of diversity. Um, so so I, I, I kind of hear that, that comment, and it does resonate. It does resonate. And I talked to a lot of people, so Samina's comment, I just wanted to reflect that back. It is a challenge. Um, but equally, it's, it was an interesting discussion I had once with someone who's in, involved in gender, and I said, look, there's this, also this ethnic question, and how do you reflect on that? She said, look, let's solve one issue at a time, and let's solve gender. And I said, but that's, that's not right. We're talking about fairness, we're talking about equity, we're talking about much broader human issues. These are not about one type of difference or another. So I think we've got to think about diversity and inclusion more broadly. Um, and, and that brings me to the future of work mm -hmm. question. So, one of the biggest shifts in work that we're seeing, um, that's, it's only beginning, but in five to 10 years will become quite significant, is this notion of enterprise agility. And lots of people talk about it, and it's a buzzword and all that. But the core idea is organizations have become quite bureaucratic. Uh, there's many, many, many levels of middle management when you go from top to bottom. And a lot of that middle management is quite ineffective and inefficient. 
Um, so if we can get work back to the person who's actually doing the work and, and make teams that are more cross-functional and agile and responsive, what would that look like? That's at the, at the heart of, heart of this, this thinking and this movement towards agility. Um, one of the organizations that's actually made this big shift has made a radical move, right? So they moved to tribes. They call their organization their, their groups of tribes. And they have squads. And it's, it's a very different way of, of, of doing work. And we spoke to a couple of the execs who made this change over the last year. And this was at an event last week. And they were in a panel like this. And people were asking them questions. And I remember when these two blokes came up, the, the lady who was sitting next to me said, wow, they look like rugby props. And they did, OK? They were like, Tell my colleagues. And we were coming in and this, oh, all right, all right, let's talk about this. And one of the questions that was asked to them was, what's your lived experience? What's different? And one of the things they said that was really interesting is, we didn't realize how much empathy we needed to have. <laughs> and that was, that was a really fascinating comment for me to hear, right? Because we talk about empathy and so on. But their lived experience was they needed to understand their teams a lot more. They needed to know what was really going on. They needed to hear what people were saying. They had, and they really had to listen to what was the undercurrents of what was. And that is in the future of work. And that, for me, I mean, we've talked about it conceptually. But for me, in that moment when they said, geez, we didn't know we needed this much empathy, was, a, was that shift, right? These very, very masculine folks saying, we need to actually understand what's really going on. We need to hear what our teams are saying. We need to know what the front line is saying, because that's where the customer is at, and we're not he hearing them. And that, for me, is the single biggest shift in the future of work. As we get to more agile teams that are going to change things more often, our ability to truly listen for what's going on is going to be the fundamental difference. Um, and I don't need to tell you, I, my empirical evidence is I love teams that have more women than men because they just listen better. They just do. I, I, I'm not making a sexist comment here, guys. It's, it, it's, it's just my lived experience, is the team feels more um, heard. The team feels more held um, when there's, there's gender balance and almost gender imbalance. Uh, and so in the future of work, as we get to those kinds of teams, those kinds of qualities become more important. And I don't know what the blokes in the room are going to do, but we've got to figure it out. Right, I mean, it's coming. Thanks, I mean, Alison, could you just, would you just make one or two comments on the issue of quotas before we're going to have to start wrapping up? Um, so I'm sorry that we're going to miss out on any more questions, but I'll just come to Alison, then I'm going to invite Brie up to the stage. Well, um, some of you, uh, including my friend Helen, who's leaving. <laughs> well, I, Helen, will know, will know that I'm, I'm very active in the 30% in the club, so I'm very committed to women's participation on boards. And the 30% clubs, I think, achieved um, the goal that we set for ourselves. And now there's a new goal of 30% for ASX 300 companies, which is a wicked problem for Western Australia. So I, I like setting targets because then they're achievable and, and everyone in the room knows in the world of work now, KPIs are a, a king and queen and we need to be able to measure what we want to achieve. I also think that although 30% um, is a target, there are de facto concepts of quotas operating in Australia and that is largely happening through institutional advisors on behalf and proxy advisors on behalf of big shareholders 
who are asking, where are the women in your boardroom? Where are the women in your executive team? What are you doing to build the pipeline of women? So I, I do think that in a de facto sense, we do have quite a vivid sense of accountability for women's participation in Australia in the transparent sector, which is the listed sector. It happens less in the private sector. Thank you. Thanks, Alison. Um, we've come to the end of our time, and we're going to have some closing remarks from the Women's Officer and Student Guild, Bree Shanahan. But, but one thing I would like to just reflect on is the degree to which authenticity, <coughs> courage, honesty, and genuineness, and actually congruence, words and actions matching, is critical to the conversation that we've had this morning. But actually, it's more, more importantly, it's critical to what we do beyond the conversation this morning. I know we'll have an opportunity to thank the panel through Bree, so I'll hand over to her, but I did just want to reflect those few observations. Please do. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I'd just first like to thank the Vice-Chancellor for inviting me to speak um, and to give closing remarks today um, and thank all of our panellists for their contributions. So perhaps we should do that. <laughs> um, so I think an issue that seems to have come out of the conversations this morning um, that has really resonated for me has been the idea of the pushback that we face and the sense of defensiveness that seems to arise when we do speak out about issues um, relating to gender equity. Um, and so I thought to kind of conceptualise the barriers that women face, I would talk about gender equity in my lifetime. Um, so the position of women's officer exists to advocate for issues um, that uh, are affecting female identifying and non-binary students on our campus. And so integral to my role is the ability to speak out about these um, and pushing for real change, um, as well as addressing harmful behaviours and attitudes that are prevalent in our community. Uh, so where has this taken me? Um, in the past month, I've been called pathetic um, for speaking about how men can perhaps do a little bit better in our community. Um, I've been asked, why isn't there a men's officer numerous times? No doubt today I'll be asked when is International Men's Day, which is in November for the record. <laughs> I've been told there's no good reason for the women's department to exist. I've been told that being a feminist and fighting for equality is promoting totalitarian hatred um, and that I should just shut up. In the past week, as I think was touched on before, it's been a pretty horrible week. Um, I've been called a not good value human. I've been told I'm a silly little girl who doesn't know what she's speaking about. I'm a typical narcissistic millennial, a stupid child. I need a good root or a lobotomy. I've been told my inability to manage my emotions is shockingly indicative of how far Australian university education has fallen at the hands of <laughs> ideological indoctrination. So maybe I should be expelled. Um, so this is what happens when young women do speak out. So as a university student, I'm three times more likely to experience sexual assault than any other age group. At UWA, I might join the 7% of students that were sexually assaulted in 2016, and I'm already part of the 51% that were sexually harassed. I'm also part of the 94% of students that didn't report their most recent experience. When I graduate from law in three years' time, I can expect to earn $5,000 less than my male counterpart graduates. 
This is a pattern that will persist throughout my career and eventually I will face a gender pay gap of 35.6%. As I continue through my law career, opportunities for progress will be limited. While women make up two thirds of law graduates, they fill less than one quarter of senior roles and only one in 10 senior council and Queen's council positions. I will also find there are fewer women running top Australian companies than men called John or Peter or David. <laughs> and after my career, I can expect to retire with 47% less superannuation, which on average is the equivalent of $90,000. But across the time, this time, it's not the wage gap or these lack of opportunities or retiring without, in, without sufficient superannuation that is most concerning to me. The biggest threat I face once I turn 25 is domestic violence, which causes more illness, disability and death than any other risk factor for women over this age. It is also the leading cause of homelessness. Perhaps I will become another statistic, one of the women to die every week from domestic violence in Australia. So gender equity in my lifetime is fighting these systemic barriers at every stage to survive. Gender equity is about constantly challenging harmful attitudes um, and some unconscious biases to, to be told that I'm too emotional or that I don't know what I'm talking about. I even got asked, what do you know about being a woman by a man called Russell? <laughs> Gender equity is knowing that when I graduate, I'll be paid less than my male counterparts. Gender equity is knowing that I'm three times more likely to be sexually assaulted than men. Gender equity is walking through the parts of campus that I know have more lighting, holding my keys between my fingers as some form of protection, locking my car doors when I get inside, but knowing that even if I take all these measures and do everything right, I'm still more likely to be killed by someone I know. Gender equity won't be achieved in my lifetime, as we know we're still 200 years away, and there's no one cause or symptom of these challenges, and there isn't one easy fix across the board. It's only by continuously challenging harmful act attitudes and beliefs that we can achieve progress for the benefit of all. And so, to put it very clearly, this call to action, which I leave you with on International Women's Day, is I ask you today to take the time to elevate the voice of one woman that you listen to today and to challenge the voice of one person that tries to silence her. Thank you. courage, genuineness, honesty and congruence and we've just had the lived experience of that in this room. Thank you Brie. Thank you to the panel. Thank you to you all for being here this morning, for being part of an honest conversation. You've heard the call to action. If you do not respond to that then you really have to ask yourself some very serious questions. Have a great day. Thank you.